agencies are gearing up to oversee a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending. That's only a fraction of the $5 trillion overseen by the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, which is still trying to catch up. The White House recently asked PRAC members to explain how the work of overseeing COVID spending might help with infrastructure spending oversight. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman caught up with the chairman of the PRAC, who's also the Inspector General of the Justice Department, Michael Horowitz. First of all, I was in the pandemic. We were dealing with over now $5 trillion in spending, and the infrastructure spending is about a little more than a trillion dollars. So the magnitude of the spending, which is substantial on the infrastructure side, was even more substantial on the pandemic side. But I think one of the key differences, or two of the key differences between the infrastructure spending and the pandemic spending is the scope of the spending on the pandemic side involved 40 or more IGs. And because the $5 trillion was spread across over 400 programs. So the size and scope of the spending was of a tremendous magnitude on the pandemic side. The infrastructure spending, still over a trillion dollars, is substantial, but the number of IGs is about 10 or so, I believe. Um, I'm not one of them, but it's about 10 or so. And another significant way that the spending is different is that a very large amount of the pandemic spending, particularly in 2020, went out very quickly. So, for example, the Paycheck Protection Program, which is an $800 billion program, $400 billion of that money went out in the first 14 days um, after the program was launched. Whereas the infrastructure spending will be spread out over time, will be involved in longer term projects and that sort of thing. In some respects, it's a little bit closer in that regard to the kind of spending that occurred with the Recovery Act back in 2009 that the Recovery and Accountability Transparency Board that IGs were overseeing. Okay. And just to follow on to that point, in terms of the speed of payment here, do you think that gives IGs and agencies a little more breathing room to be vigilant before payments go out the door? I think the speed of the spending is a very significant issue and factor. It certainly was for us with pandemic spending. The model that was followed early on was essentially send out the money right away um, and we'll figure out later whether the money went to the right people. The pay and chase model was the initial model. That doesn't work. It's something that we've talked about as IGs. The Government Accountability Office, GAO, has talked about that as well. The need to take the time to make sure the spending is done right, not to delay it indefinitely, not to create long lag times. There's a place where that can occur that's a reasonable amount of time to make sure that you've thought about the risks and the challenges to get the money out. And it ensures that the agency is more careful and the money goes to the right place. You also mentioned the other element too, which is the scope of the number of IGs who will be working on this. And of course, the PRAC was a really whole of government effort, 40 IGs looking at this issue in terms of pandemic spending. Um, In terms of the 10 or so IGs who will be looking at infrastructure spending, any thoughts there on how they should organize themselves? Should there be a a smaller PRAC-like model for them to coordinate? Or does SIGI really take care of that element of things? So one of the things we found helpful at the at the PRAC and on the pandemic spending side is the whole of government approach, is bringing together all of the IGs, collaborating with each other, making sure we were aware of what we were learning as we were going forward. The PRAC helped serve as that connectivity between the various IGs. 
Uh, my understanding is that the transportation infrastructure IGs uh, are already coordinating through their own working group. The legislation didn't create a, a group like the PRAC, and so the IGs there have pulled together and started doing their own informal um, collaboration and, and efforts in that regard. And I do think that's critical to success is the collaboration between IGs. And I'm certainly glad to see that they've begun that effort. Okay. And let's change gears here a little bit and talk about some of the tools that IGs have used for pandemic oversight. Um, the tools and technology that were useful for going after fraud, waste, and abuse in terms of COVID spending. How might these tools be useful for overseeing infrastructure spending? So one of the things we did um, at the PRAC is recognizing that when you're going to oversee $5 trillion, you can't just do it through people looking at records. And it, it just, there's too much spending. There's a too large amount of spending. It, it's going to so many different entities. There are so many different programs that you need to be able to use data in order to conduct the oversight effectively. That's got to be a central and critical tool. And so one of the things we did was create the uh, Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence, the PACE, as we call it, to bring together, we currently have over 150 million records that we have brought together, and we're looking and gathering more as we go along, to analyze spending, to look for anomalies in spending, for example, to look for addresses that were used for applications for multiple programs or multiple applications for the same program. Similarly, with use of social security numbers, telephone numbers, bank accounts, things like that, looking for foreign web addresses, all the things that are indicia of fraud, wrongdoing, we've sought to do by bringing together the data that's available to us. I think what we've learned as inspectors general over the years and certainly through the pandemic oversight is that Effective oversight has to include as an important part of the toolkit, the use of data analytics. And so I would fully expect that the IGs overseeing the infrastructure spending are going to do the same thing. As you mentioned earlier, you know, it really does take a village for oversight to happen for, and IGs are certainly part of that conversation, but it seems that agency CFOs, the budget side of OMB are also parts of that conversation. And so whether we're talking about pandemic spending or we're talking about infrastructure spending, how can IGs work with those other communities here to ensure that program integrity is rock solid before payments are issued? You know, one of the things that occurred back in 2021 was that myself and other IGs were invited to participate in a couple of CFO roundtable meetings by OMB leadership to talk precisely about the payment integrity issue and the importance of ensuring that effective controls were in place and fraud risks were considered early on. Those were good discussions with the CFO council to be able to relay our thinking and the importance that we put on those issues with them and to have good frank discussions about it. And they were very supportive of what we were saying. And I think we've seen changes in how agencies approach programs over the last year or so. Michael Horowitz, chairman of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee and IG of the Justice Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. 
I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.